You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So once you get there, would you please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you. Merry Christmas season. Um, Like Lauren said, we've been in a series called The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, and it truly is. I love Christmas to my core. So Court was talking last week about how it's kind of a struggle. He has to do the lights for me. I'm like the guy jamming Christmas music on my second story roof, just smile on my face putting Christmas lights up. I just love everything about it. Um, I, I realize I probably shouldn't leave with this. The reaction was like, wow, I can't believe you said that last service. So I'm going to do it again just because it feels right. But the odds were stacked against me, okay? There's this ancient secret that all the parents in here know about Christmas. I'm not going to say anything about it. That's right or wrong, whatever. It's an ancient secret we all know about. And for me, when I was, you know, younger, around seven, I found out that ancient secret wasn't true on the same week that I found out my parents were separating. So the odds were stacked against me, and I still love Christmas, all right? I still loved it. And so I have loving parents, don't worry. But anyways, um, so it truly is one of the most wonderful times of the year. I love it. We're saying it's the, the most, so I'll say the most. But the point is, and, and Court did a good job at last week, last week, is that we are, are celebrating the gospel story, right? It, it's not... You know, the whole kind of point of the series is obviously we, we don't want to just take at face value what our culture's made Christmas and just embrace that as the whole thing, right? The, the point is, is the reason why the church started celebrating this was to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, amen? That's what we're celebrating. And so we say it's the most wonderful time of the year. We are saying we should be in awe, in wonder, in amazement, with deep joy in our hearts that this is true, that God came to earth, right? That Jesus Christ is God with us. This is huge. It is worth celebrating, and we shouldn't overshadow this with Christmas traditions. I'm not saying don't use them. I think it's good, but we do it in such a way because we long to celebrate this. We long to see this more. Amen. So that's what we're talking about in this series. I want to go ahead and pray for us before we hop into Matthew 1, and we'll get there. So if you don't mind, bow your heads. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. God, we thank you that we get to look into your word and see all of your promises that have their yes and amen in your son, Jesus Christ. That brings us joy. 
That's why we gather to hear from your word because God, we, you're everything to us. You are our hope, God, in life and in death. And so, Father, I just pray as we talk about how you became flesh, fully God, fully man, and you're with us, that we would celebrate together this morning, that we'd rejoice in the truths that we know to be true, that we'd worship you in spirit and in truth in this very room. God, we pray that the enemy would not be able to steal the seed of the word, but it would plant onto good soil that bears fruit for your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so there's three things I want to point out that Matthew gives us here in this. So just to give context to the text, he is going through the genealogy right before this. So he gives the genealogy of Christ, the generations leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And there's lots of cool stuff in that. But the point is that he's showing like this is the long-awaited Messiah. Remember Genesis 3.15, sin enters the world, the fall happens. God's handing out all the curses to the man, to the woman, to the serpent. And God makes a promise that through the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent and would make all things right. And Matthew is showing us this is that moment, right? The birth of Christ is that moment. Genesis 3.15 fulfilled the promises of God made and set forth. And so he leads now from that into a zoomed in, you know, gives a big genealogy, zoomed out, and he zooms in and says, this is what happened. These are the conditions of the birth of Christ. And so he's going to give us three major things here. The first one is how Jesus came. He's going to talk about how he came, the circumstances surrounding that. The second is he's going to explain who Jesus is. He's going to give a, a definition of who is the Christ. And then lastly, we're going to answer the question, why is this good news? Why is this good news? So I hope you're with me. It's the cat out of the bag. Let's get into it. So number one, how did Jesus come or how Jesus came? He came through divine conception. It's my answer. He came through divine conception. This is the virgin birth. Okay, if you look at any ancient creed, Throughout history of Christianity that has unified the church, it's always included the virgin birth. And if you're like me, I always thought that's a strange detail, but cool. It is kind of a cool thing. But it's not just cool. It is foundational. The virgin birth, the divine conception is foundational to our beliefs. And we're going to explain why. But let's just go through what Matthew does because Matthew gives a lot of evidence for this. And here's how he starts. He said, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And this was in uh, verse 18. Okay, so a betrothal during this time was, was like a legal covenant. This was like really getting married. So it's kind of strange how they would do things. It's different to us. But they would be betrothed to be married, and it would be about a year they would be betrothed. And then they would come together to consummate the marriage, live together, and be a married couple in their home. So they have this kind of year gap, all right? And, but it was legally binding. And so you couldn't just say, ah, you know what? This isn't working out for me. I'm going to go marry someone else or I want to get out of this. You actually had to go through divorce proceedings. So you had made like a legal, legal covenant together. So that's what they did, okay? And then we know, because in verse 18 he also notes this is before they came together. So this is before, you know, them having a baby was possible, okay? It's before they came together. And then in verse 18 and 20 he lets us know that, that Mary was with child from the Holy Spirit. That's repeated twice. That's important. So it was the Holy Spirit that caused the conception. Uh, we also see that Joseph, uh, this isn't like, you know, because there's a lot of 
uh, I don't know what, myths, I guess. There's a lot of false teaching that says, oh, well, basically this wasn't quite like that. There wasn't like a virgin birth. They were obviously were married. But it's clear the fact that Joseph was a just man. Matthew wants us to know that. So he's righteous. Therefore, because his wife was with child, he was going to divorce her, right? Now, he was going to do it quietly because he was a nice guy, but he was a just guy. So obviously there was no way that this could be their child in that sense, right? So he was going to do that. And then also we get the angel announcement. Anytime an angel just shows up out of the blue and announces something, it's usually important in the Bible, okay? It's not the time to sleep. You get a big announcement about the fulfillment of the prophecy. And then we get scripture itself quoted in chapter 20, or not chapter, but verse 23, which is quoting Isaiah 7:14, which promises there would be a virgin who conceives a child and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Sorry, ask my little girl. She's She's getting crazy. Um, so there's a lot of evidence here. And what Matthew's trying to lead us to is this was, in fact, indeed, historically, totally true, a virgin birth. This was a divine conception from the Holy Spirit. So this is different, right? Because we know that in Adam, all die, right? Whoever's born in Adam is conceived in iniquity, is born into sin, comes out of the womb, hell-bent on hell, and is destructive, right? But Jesus was different. So the conclusion of this is that Jesus was born of a virgin. This is the greatest miracle in the Bible. Throughout all the scripture, you cannot find a greater miracle to ever exist. The God of the universe becomes a child. This is a crucial point. We cannot wonder from this because anytime you wonder this, you get into false doctrine. You look at any of the major, you know, very liberal now Christian universities, a lot of the professors started teaching the virgin birth wasn't real. It's like the floodgate, okay? It's the gateway drug for false teaching, okay? When you take away the virgin birth, you take away the divinity of Christ, and you take away the essence of the gospel. This is what you do. We cannot lose the virgin birth. This is what has united the church for so long, is that Christ came as the God-man, okay? And this can only happen through the virgin birth. And so we can't, so we've got to ask the question, and I'd kind of answer it, but why is this doctrine so important? Why is Matthew really honing in on this, giving lots of evidence? He's spending the back half of chapter 1 explaining this. Why would he do that? Because if Christ was not born of the Virgin Mary, Christ is not who he said he was. He is not who he said he is. He is not the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is not the, the, the one by which all things, through all which all things were created in heaven and on earth. He is not the Christ the Savior, the legitimate, perfect Savior. So therefore, Jesus came as a sinless Son of God, perfect in every way. And this is what the virgin birth explains. Okay, this is important. Now, we're going to move on, but that's how Jesus came. This is the circumstance. Now, in saying that, we started to talk about it, but we've got to answer the question as we get into this text, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This text is giving us a lot of information. So I'm going to try to be succinct with this and timely but I'll give this statement and then we'll start to unravel it, which is Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. If you're doing the math, it doesn't make sense. And I want to relieve you from having to do that math. And I want to say that it is impossible to comprehend with clarity and definition this miracle. That's the point, okay? When the Bible says that the secret things belong to the Lord, these are the secret things. It's like the Trinity, okay? Okay? You get into some 
crazy false doctrine if you try to define it too clearly, right? If you say, oh, well, he gets one God, but he just appears as three different people. Well, then how does Jesus, is kind of confusing, right? And you can go on and on. I won't get too far into that. But the point is this, is that this is meant to be jaw-dropping, divine miracle. This is amazing. We are supposed to stand in awe. We are not supposed to look at the Christmas story, at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, and say, yeah, that's cool. No way. This is amazing. The God of the universe has become a man. I want to run a a few things by you just to get a feel for this as we celebrate Christmas. Think about this. The eternal one who has no beginning nor end has a birthday. The one who said before Abraham was, I am. John 8, 58. He has a birthday. The one who created all things and upholds the universe with the power of his might is a helpless babe dependent on a mother and a father. That's crazy. The sovereign one who sits in the heavens and as the Psalms records, does whatever he pleases, becomes the sufferer and the man who's betrayed. The Omnipotent one becomes tired, weak, and hungry. The one who holds the keys of death and hell is murdered on a cross. And the one who judges all of the earth in righteousness is slaughtered for the sins and shame of the world. Augustine says it best when he says this. Augustine of Hippo, he said, Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that healer might be wounded, that life might die. This is the Christmas. It's amazing, okay? I'm not judging you on how you try to celebrate Christmas, but all I'm saying is we better be talking about this to our children. We better be talking about it to each other. This is, we celebrate this. This is why the Bible says we, we greet one another with, uh, you know, hymns and songs and spiritual songs. And, all and you might think that's kind of weird, right? I'm not like, hey, brother, hallelujah. That's not what I'm doing, right? You guys didn't know I could sing. That was free. But just kidding. Uh, because we're celebrating together, we got to get better at this. Look at me. As a child, okay, I have this, like, memory. You know, I have lots of Christmas memories. Uh, my, my family did really well. I learned a lot about the gospel. But when it came time to Christmas, I'm all about the presents, all right? I remember just one, I got this picture of me, like, long flowing mullet. I'm probably, like, five. I got the white Power Ranger costume on with the gloves and the shoes. I am, like, equipped to rip, okay? I'm fighting my sister. She got the pink one. And uh, just having a great time. And I, I, this is going to go over some of you. But I feel like if my parents would have sat down and said, hey, this stuff is cool. But don't forget, God's the one that really defeats the putties. I would have been like, okay, this makes a lot of sense, right? He's victorious. Now, if you <laughs> didn't catch that, okay, you don't know what putties are. You've got to go back and watch Power Rangers from the 90s, and you'll understand what I mean. But the point is this, that God is victorious, right? God is the conqueror. The gospel is true. And my parents did a good job of that. I'm not hating on them. But we've we got to focus on this. We've got to celebrate God became man. This is amazing. Now, we've got to be careful because... There are some early heresies that develop in the church that continue today in our minds if we're not careful. Okay, he's fully God and fully man. This is so important. Uh, One of the most famous ones and probably one that we find ourselves falling into was called monophysitism. 
okay? It was also named after a guy. I can't pronounce his name. It looks like Eutychianism. I don't know what it means. But anyways, this was the heresy. The point of this was that God had a divine nature and through the birth had a human nature. And basically that divine nature swallowed up the human nature and developed a third nature that no one else can obtain. And this diminishes the gospel. We're going to explain why as we get into it. But that, that can't be believed because God is fully man and, and fully God. And he has, Christ has to be that to be the Savior. It wasn't like a few others that said basically God just took on a human body, but there was no real humanness. It was God altogether in the mind, just a physical human body, and that was it. You can't do that. You can't go and say that there's like two separate persons just existing together in Christ, like almost like they're waging war. It is that he is fully God fully man. This is in unity and harmony. Okay, so let's break both of these down and explain what does that mean that he's fully man? What does it mean that he's fully God? And why is that good news for us? That's where we're going, okay? So first thing, he is fully man. I got three ways that he really exhibits this and and gives evidence to his manhood. The first is physically, okay? This is evidence, obviously, in his birth. He really takes on flesh. He has a physical body, right? He comes as as a human. This is why when he's calling himself God and not stopping the kids from worshiping him, the Pharisees want to kill him because it's like a man making himself God. So he was clearly physically a man, okay? He was also subjected to suffering, pain, sickness, exhaustion, hunger, thirst, temptations, fear, anxiety, and ultimately death. He shared in our humanness, in every single way except for sin. He is human. He was human physically. He was also human mentally. One of the most profound scriptures that you will spend your whole life trying to understand and never will is in Luke 2.52. And Luke basically says that Christ increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And you think, what does that mean? Like, when you think of Jesus as a baby, you think goo goo gaga. He had to learn. He learned language. He learned what mom was, what dad was. Now, clearly, it was a little bit different, okay? He's 12 years old and he's schooling the Pharisees in Jerusalem. But nonetheless, there was an actual, like, learning of Christ. He was submitted mentally to what it means to be a human. This is profound and amazing. This is crazy. So, Silent Night wouldn't make sense because he was a crying baby, right? It was not a Silent Night. He was really human. Uh, Lastly is emotionally, okay? Christ evidenced his human emotion in the fact that Christ weeps over Jerusalem because he's sad of their unrepentance. He weeps over Lazarus as he dies. He has fear, right? He's so anxious that he sweat drops of blood in the garden. He's about to take the wrath of God upon him. He exhibits emotion. Now, we've got to be clear, okay, because it's easy for us to, if we're not careful, because we have sinful emotions to kind of translate that into all of that. But remember, Christ is without sin. When he was angry, it was just. When he was weeping, it was just, but nonetheless, he actually experienced emotion. Remember, God's not moved by emotion, but Christ was moved by emotion. This is profound and unique. He was human in a real way. But not only was he fully man and took on flesh, but he was fully God. This is evidence in many, many ways. One, in this text, we see the divine conception right from the Holy Spirit. There's evidence that he was, in fact, God. Um, but it's also, like, you got to think of it this way. Not only did he have all the good and right human characteristics, but he also had all the characteristics of God. I want to go through a few of these. One, it's clear that Jesus, when he was on earth, had authority over all creation. Okay, he walks on water. He multiplies food. He walks through walls. He defies gravity. He heals the sick and the lame and the mute 
He casts demons out of people's bodies. He is asserting his authority on earth. We see that. He has authority over, over all creation. He has knowledge of hearts and minds. Think of John 4, the woman at the well, right? Jesus does some unique things. He tells people all they've ever done. He knows all things about them. This is a unique thing about Christ and about God. Also, he has authority over demons, death, hell, and sin, which technically files under all of creation, but we're going to talk about that specifically. Jesus commands demons, and they obey him. They beg him not to end them. They say, the time has not come yet. Don't do that. Send us into the pigs. Send us somewhere else. Don't kill us. He has authority over darkness. He freely lays his life down on a cross and dies and then picks it up again. That's what he says. He promised he'd pick it up in three days, and he did it after dying. He has authority to forgive people of all their sins, past, present, and future. Think about the lame person that, that Christ says, oh, it would be easy to kind of heal someone, but so that you would believe that I'm the Christ, your sins are forgiven. Go your way. And the Pharisees, once again, are furious. Who is he to say that? Because he's God. He can. And he causes his people to walk in righteousness. So he is, in fact, God. He is God. He is man. He is God. You can't separate that. He is fully both. This is so unique and amazing. And I love it because when we get to eternity, we are going to see the God-man, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. He is the perfect like translation because we are human and just stupid. He is the perfect translation of who God is. Jesus really gives handles on the character and nature and love of God. We should be amazed he came to earth. And also we should be amazed because God humbled himself to be a human. He humbled himself to be a human. The maker of heaven and earth, the sustainer of it all, who holds everything together, every, as Spurgeon said, dust moat. It's all in his control. That God became a human. Let's look at Philippians 2 really fast, starting verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's amazing. The God of the universe became man. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant, of a human being, and even suffered death. Life dying, like the Augustine quote, that's just, it's profound. It's amazing. And you have permission this morning to be in awe. We should be. We should be worshipful and amazed at our God. So Jesus is the God-man who saves us from our sin. That's who he is. And he came, and this is a mysterious, majestic thing. So, lastly, why is this good news? Now, you probably smart. You got some good news from that. We're going to go through just some details. I see four things in this text in particular of why this is good news for us, that Jesus is the God. Man, let's go through them. Number one is that, and really, this, I guess, let me, let me say this. Overarching, God is with us. Okay? This is what... This is why they say they shall call his name Emmanuel, and it means God with us. God is with us. This is amazing. We are undeserving. We are frail. We do not deserve the Lord, and he is with us. Now let's go through four ways that he's with us. That's what I meant to say. I messed it up. Let's go. Um, God is with us as a promise keeper. 
Now, I won't going to go too far into this. Court did a good job explaining this last week, but remember back to Genesis 3.15, right? This was a promise from ancient times, right? As soon as sin, sin enters the world, God makes a promise, there will be a man through the woman's seed, and he will crush the head of the serpent. You look at the genealogy, like it's a mess. Jesus' genealogy is not something to be proud of. It's crazy. You get prostitutes in there. You got all kinds of crazy people in there. And God was sovereignly working out all of that so that Christ might be born. He might send the Savior, and we might rejoice. Uh, we have salvation in Him. It's amazing. Okay, He's keeping His promises. This text in Isaiah is actually a promise God made back in the time of King Ahaz. Okay, King Ahaz was a terrible king. The Bible describes him as just evil and worthless, basically, okay? And during his time, he had all these nations that were surrounding Israel that were going to attack them, and God basically promised that he would help. And Ahaz, instead of being a good king and trusting in God, said, nope, I'm going to trust the king of Assyria. He's going to come over here and help me. That didn't work out, if you were wondering. And on top of that, God, still in love, promises to Ahaz that there is going to come a time that there will be one born of a virgin, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The promised Savior was fulfilled. God is keeping his promises. God always keeps his promises. He is with us in that way. So every time we are struggling with our faith, we are fighting to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can remember that God is with us as a promise keeper. He keeps his promises every time, right? They all have their yes and amen in Jesus Christ, and in that we rejoice. Number two, God is with us in our suffering. This is important. This really leans on the human nature of Christ, right? We went over this, that, that Christ endured, right? He endured suffering. Have you ever been lonely? Christ was lonelier, right? Have you ever been betrayed? Christ was betrayed by his closest friends. You ever suffered physical pain? Christ has suffered physical pain. Have you ever suffered emotional pain? Christ has. Have you ever been so anxious that you would rather die? Christ was there. And I can go on and on to all the things we experience, but Christ in every way has experienced them. Therefore, as the book of Hebrews says, we have a sympathetic high priest, right? We don't have a God that can't feel. He came down in flesh and he felt what we feel. This should be encouraging to you as you suffer. So encouraging. Yes, it's encouraging that he's always good, Yes, that's encouraging that we know he's going to work all things out for our good. Man, that's encouraging. But it's also encouraging to know that he cares. He is present. The Bible calls him a very present help in time of need. I I risk being maybe too simple with this and taken away from his godness. But Jesus is a brother in the trenches, not a captain in the tent. He's with us as we struggle. Amen? I don't like using personal examples. But I'm going to use one just because I hope it gets the point across. But I, I, I've said this in the first gathering, I have not suffered a lot in my life. I've had a very easy life. It's just, I guess, part of being in America and part of just how I grew up. So many of you probably have way worse stories. And that's, I'm not trying to create a pity party here. I'm just from experience. I, uh, you know, several years ago got some type of sickness. And when it first happened, I always thought, I was telling people, you know, I read enough John Piper to know that when I was going to suffer, I was going to be great at it, okay? I was going to be like, oh, glory to God, man, it's good. doesn't bother me at all. And if you've ever got into John Piper, you know what I'm talking about. As soon as, as, soon as you enter, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to suffer, baby, for Christ. Come join Christ outside the camp, right, as Hebrews 13 says. And I started getting sick, and I didn't know what was going on. 
I mean, I thought I was having a heart attack. I go to the ER. They're like, I don't know, man, you look fine. I guess uh, follow up with your doctor. I'm like, I don't have a doctor or insurance. Tell me what I'm, what's happening. Am I dying? And, like, no one can tell me anything. I got, like, so weak. I, I mean, believe it. I was way skinnier than this, if you could believe that. Lost tons of weight. Could hardly lift my kids up. And, I mean, it was just miserable. And I would get strong and go out of it again. And I remember the first several years that was happening, I was just a just terrible sufferer. I mean, I was just, like, doubting the Lord. I had never had to face, like, the fear of death like that before, you know, and I'm sure, you know, maybe this past couple of years, a lot of you experienced that. And I just remember thinking as I kind of got through that, and it's still a struggle, by the way, but as I'm wrestling through this, if I didn't believe God was with me, if I didn't believe that Jesus was looking at me saying, I know, I've been there. I know, I know what it feels like. I know where you're at and I care. And this is for your good. I, I would never be able to endure suffering at all, ever. How could you? be miserable. But with Christ, he's with us. He's with you. He is God with you. He is God in your suffering. He is God in your pain. And he endured it and can say, I know what that's like. And man, is it going to be good for you one day. (laughs) Man, will it be amazing when you're in the kingdom. He is with us in our suffering. He is present with us. Remember that. Remember that. Thirdly, God is with us as our Savior. The text points this out in verse 21. It says, he will come and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Amen. Jesus is God with us. Okay, the name Jesus, that is the Greek version of Joshua, the Hebrew name, which means God saves. It was a reason he was named Jesus. It was because he is our Savior. So Jesus came to take away all of our sin and let us be reminded, we're celebrating the gospel today, and let us be reminded that Jesus did not come at your best or at your half best, he came at your worst. Jesus covers all sin, past, present, and future, all covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood is not weak that he can't cover it all, right? He covers it all. That's why the Bible says, Christ died for us when we were still sinners. At the right time, he died for us, right? So that way we couldn't say, well, he died for me when I was pretty bad, but oh man, after I came to know Christ, then I murdered someone. Now I'm done for. Now murder is a different topic, but you know where I'm going with that. So I want to remind us, the book of Romans calls Christ the second Adam. This is so important, okay? The book of Romans says, through the first Adam, all what? Perish. They all perish. Through Adam, sin enters everybody. They all perish. Everyone's destined for death. But through Christ, the better Adam, the second Adam, all live is what the book of Romans says. I love that, okay? Through one man, all die. And through one God-man, all live. Anyone in Christ lives forever. Christ bore your shame. I don't care how shameful you feel. I don't. I mean, I care that you feel shame, but... Uh, there's, there's, there's no way you could convince me there's a sin that brought so much shame to your life that Christ would not love you. That's not true. Now, I know we're thinking blasphemy the Holy Spirit. That's a different topic for another day, okay? But Christ loves infinite love and shame. And I, I just implore you, if you're in a position where you, you just feel like you can't come to Christ, it's not true. One of the most profound texts to me is in the book of Hebrews. It, it's this, one of the scariest texts, but it's one of the most beautiful texts in all the Bible. And he says, look, as long as it is called today, don't harden your hearts like they did in the rebellion. The writer of Hebrews is imploring the people to come 
to Christ. He offers salvation. You're forgiven in him. You're justified. It's cast into a sea of forgetfulness that is as wide as eternity. It is forever forgotten in Christ. It is paid for by the precious blood of Christ. And so that's why he warns, do not harden your hearts. As long as it's called the day, come. And that's his imploring for us today. Come, I'm the Savior that's with you. Come. He's with us as a Savior. Amen. Number four. God is with us always. God is with us forever. Okay? I don't want you to get lost in this. God is not only with us as a promise keeper, as a fellow sufferer, and as a Savior, but he is with us always. So Jesus promised in Matthew 28, right? Behold, I will be with you always to the ends of the earth. Christ came to earth, not merely on vacation. He wasn't stopping through to see what was going on here, see what was happening, see if there was any followers. It was not a temporary thing. He came once and for all to reconcile us back to himself into his family. Just as Christ had an earthly adoption by Mary and Joseph, so we have a heavenly adoption by God our Father, and we are brought into his family, into his kingdom forever, and in that we rejoice, in that we find great peace. This is why the gospel is called good news of great joy. (laughs) It's not temporary. It's forever, baby. Forever. The most terrible thing about this life, we quoted the fear of death in worship. The most terrible thing about this life is it ends. No matter how much you try to convince yourself it's not going to, no matter how much you ignore it, this life ends for all of us. Yet not with Christ. As Jesus said, you will never taste death. This is beautiful. Never. I'll never taste it in Christ. He is God with us. This is the most profound mystery in all of Scripture. This is the foundation of our joy that He is God with us. So, in light of that, let's go through a few things in conclusion. Since God is with us as a promise keeper, He turns our fear into trust. Since God is with us as a fellow sufferer, he turns our suffering into satisfaction. Since God is with us as a savior, he turns our sin and our shame into salvation. And since God is with us forever, he turns the darkness of this world into everlasting light in eternity. This is the hope we have. This is the promise we have. This is the good news of Christmas. This is the good news of the gospel. So I want to end today before we pray. I just want to remind us the importance of what we believe. Okay? This is not something new. And actually throughout all of church history, like I said, over and over again, those who have created these creeds have come back to the virgin birth, the God-man of Jesus Christ, and the single greatest document ever created on the subject outside of the Bible was the Nicene Creed. Way back in the day, all right, some dudes got together and there was a battle, okay? There was like guys on both sides of the aisle that were ready to murder each other, okay? There was lots of threats, but it was the fight of the church to define who is Christ, to battle these heresies and figure out what do we believe as the church of God, where's our hope? And they came up with some of the most beautiful lines. And so you guys stay seated. You don't going to read it with me. I'm just going to read it to you. And 
I just want to embrace as a church together this ancient creed that has always united us under what we believe. So let's read it. Right before this, he talks about this we believe, and he kind of goes on. Okay, so this is the context. So listen, and then let's pray. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Amen. This is what we believe. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the promise in Matthew 1 that you are God with us. You are not God away from us. You are God with us. You are in us. You are with us in every way that we need and could ever want. You are our joy, our satisfaction, our peace. Therefore, in the midst of this world, broken with sin, wrought with destruction, we do not fear. We do not lose hope because, God, you are with us. This is the anchor to our faith. This is the foundation of our belief in you, our trust that all of our sins, all of our shame will be wiped away, will be clean in your precious blood, O Jesus Christ, gone forever, cast into the sea, never to be brought again. We are justified. We are made holy. We are made righteous. We are loved in you, O God. And I pray, help us, O God, for the person in the room that cannot see it, cannot grasp it, cannot hold on in simple faith to your love. God, I pray, help them. Help us, God, to be in awe and to wonder and to rejoice at the hope of this story because it's true. It's what the church has always believed, always clung to, and God, we are not going to stop that. We cling to this truth. You are God of true God in the flesh for our sin forever saved in you. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. So as we celebrate Christmas this year, I pray we'd be encouraged. I pray we'd have something to celebrate and to rejoice in. And we pray this in the precious, mighty, awesome, glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.